This episode is brought to you by the Denver Public Library. This season is all about women writers who are working to create community impact. We think elevating the work of these writers is so important that we've partnered with one of our favorite community resources, our local library system, Denver Public Library to be exact. And whether you're in Denver or someplace else, the library wants you to know that they're still here providing vital community resources. The Denver Public Library works to foster a culture of exploration, innovation, and forward thinking, and is focused on creating a strong community where everyone thrives. Head over to denverlibrary.org to access the latest virtual events and resources and find some of the great books by many of the talented authors we've had the pleasure of featuring this season. Hey, it's Tanji Renee. Before we get to the show, I'm popping in to quickly ask for a huge favor. If you're a fan of this show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of growing our listenership this season, and we could only do it with your help. Please take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Look at your phone right now and hit subscribe. Next, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave us a written review in addition to the five stars. That helps even more. This show has grown because of the incredible support of our listeners, and we have an ambitious goal of getting to our next 10,000 downloads this season. We can't reach our goal without your help, so please subscribe, rate this podcast, and don't forget to keep sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Just hit share from wherever you're listening. That's it. Easy peasy. Thanks in advance for all your support. Smooches! Hey there, Inspiration Junkies. It's me, Tangier Renee, and this is season six, episode three of That's What She Did podcast. I am ready to introduce you to our next author, Rachel Verona Cote. She's an accomplished writer whose work has appeared in such outlets as The New Republic, Long Reads, Rolling Stone, Literary Hub, Catapult, The Poetry Foundation, and even Jezebel. In her new book, Too Much, How Victorian Constraints Still Bind Women Today, Rachel braids together cultural criticism and storytelling in an interesting exploration of how culture can grind away at the bodies, the souls, and sexualities of women, forcing them into smaller lives than they desire. It's a thing that we're battling with even today in the year 2020. And she breaks down with really great storytelling and relatable instances about how this works in culture today and some things that we can probably do about it. So buckle up, let's go ahead and jump right in. Welcome back, folks, to another episode of That's What She Did. We are in the She Wrote That Season. And I am very, very happy to bring you our next author. She wrote a book called Too Much, How Victorian Constraints Still Bind Women Today. And if I'm being completely honest, I was not excited about reading this book when I first got it. (laughs) (laughs) I judged the book by its cover. I apologize. I was wrong. Actually really enjoyed this book. I think you might as well. I think it's relevant. There's a lot of cultural connections here to where we are in the world. So I've just been enjoying it thoroughly. And I'm excited that I'm going to be able to give this away to an audience member. So make sure you stay to the end and learn how you can win one of the book editions of 
the several authors that are going to be on this season. Now, let me introduce you to Rachel Verona Cote. I'm so excited to have you here, Rachel. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely my pleasure. So as I shared with you before we started recording, I committed to reading every single book of every author (laughs) this season, which has turned out to be quite the undertaking. I didn't realize it was going to take this much time, but it's been fun and interesting. I've learned a lot. And when I got your book, your title has the word Victorian in the title. And I was immediately like, oh God, this is going to be a painful read. (laughs) I expected it to sound like an art history class or a textbook of some kind and it's not that at all so just as a reminder to everyone try not to judge a book by its cover or a book by its title maybe (laughs) because this has been a great read so far I'm not finished with it but I am thoroughly enjoying it (laughs) so thank you (laughs) thank you no it's I mean it's it's fair I can see how the the title might make it sound as if uh there's a I don't know like a 75 year old white man in a tweed jacket with a pipe (laughs) behind it. But that's not me. (laughs) No, definitely not. So Too Much is a book that I think is pretty timely for where we are in the cultural context around feminism Mm -hmm. right now. And it's a book that talks about how the culture of Victorian times has really permeated how we think about femininity Mm -hmm. in the world today. Is that a fair synopsis, a quick and dirty Yeah, I think absolutely that the Victorians didn't, obviously didn't invent patriarchy. They didn't invent misogyny, but there was just a lot of the sort of pathology behind this uh, sort of notion of femininity as, as fundamentally excessive. The idea of women is just sort of being too much. You know, it sort of, it reaches a sort of interesting point in the Victorian period. And, and I think a lot of the ideology that was prevailing then, I think it's persisted, you know. In the 19th century, women were being diagnosed as hysterics, you know, and basically being told what was wrong with them, not being trusted to be narrators of their own experience. Today, a woman-identified person might go to a doctor and say, you know, I think I have endometriosis or something going on, and then be told, it's all in your head. You know, you're making something up. We still have this enduring sort of sense of femme bodies, women's bodies, of being sort of illegible in a way, and also of our, the custodians of those bodies, of being people who can't really be trusted to know what their lived experience is. True. 100% I agree with that. (laughs) I've definitely been called hysterical a time or two in my life. So you're a scholar of the Victorian period, something you seem to study pretty extensively, and you teach on the subject as well. Is that right? I did, yeah, when I was in grad school. What is it about the Victorian period that is especially fascinating for you? You know, I think some of it has to do with exposure. Some of the first stories that I was introduced to were they were 19th century stories and and I think I and then I began to gravitate towards all of the wild women mm-hmm. in these novels and I think there was probably to some degree even if I wasn't fully aware there was some sort of recognition of there's probably some resonance that you know in so many 
of these big doorstop novels. We have a woman who is grinding up against any number of constraints. A woman who just doesn't fit, maybe doesn't know how to fit, maybe doesn't really want to fit. And, and often in the 19th century, that goes really freaking badly for a woman in that scenario. And I think because I, I was always a very loud, anxious, exuberant, you know, brim full of everything sort of child, you know, the sort of, the sort of kid who behaved very well, but also often needed to be told to lower her voice or tone it down. I think there was probably some recognition of that. You know, I, there's some pleasure in seeing, oh, okay, you know, there, maybe there isn't a clear answer to this question of there being room for everyone, even those of us who don't exactly know how to behave, but there should be, you know, mm-hmm. these books that seem to suggest that there should be room for the too much women, you know, the loud and exuberant and sexual and horny women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that resonates for me pretty deeply. I've always really loved to read. It was something that became an escape for me from like the crazy world, right? (laughs) And so I started reading. I remember when I was pretty young, one of my aunts came over. She had gone to a garage sale or something and picked up a massive box of books. And there were a bunch of like babysitter club books in there. There was a lot of Nancy Drew. And I remember looking at reading Babysitter Club and then reading Nancy Drew. And I was like, well, I don't like these Babysitter Club books anymore. (laughs) I was like, I never read another one of them. So I read like all of the Nancy Drew books. And there were some Hardy Boys books in there. And I started reading the Hardy Boys. And I was like, well, why are the boys, they get to do all the fun stuff. (laughs) They never need help. They just have it figured out. And I think that was why once I got started getting older and I had more language and more context, I was noticing these themes where women were very much cast in the damsel of distress role and I hated Mm -hmm. it. Hey there, my fellow inspiration junkies. Do you miss browsing shelves for books, movies, and music? Denver Public Library is still here for you, offering these great resources both online and curbside. Tell Denver Public Library what you like to read or what you're craving, and they'll send you a whole entire personalized reading list with five to eight customized recommendations just for you. You can even place holds of up to 10 items that you can pick up curbside at most locations. How's that for convenience? Need a library card? No worries. Register for an e-card today and immediately access hundreds of e-media resources like e-books, audiobooks, music, movies, and so much more. And yes, it's all still free. I'm not ashamed to admit that I am totally a library junkie. You can call me a nerd if you want to, honey. I'll take it. Denver Public Library branches will be reopening soon. So make sure you check out denverlibrary.org for the latest info. And don't forget to follow Denver Public Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Smooches! Listener Perks Alert! I'm excited to tell you about Libro FM. It lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, 
you get the same audiobooks at the same prices as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. For every purchase you make on Libro FM, a local bookstore of your choosing gets half the profits. It's a super simple way to shop local right from your own phone. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and you don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of That's What She Did podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Who doesn't love a BOGO? I know I do. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and enter code she did. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Now, how's that for a listener perk? And there was a point where I read a lot of Anne Rice and a lot of vampire novels because I think I couldn't have named it at the time. It was the only thing that I could find where the women characters were very strong and they were very much in their own skin and Mm -hmm. they were sexual beings and they said what they wanted to say and they were powerful. It was a phase. I don't really read those kind of novels anymore. I've always meant to because I like vampires. They're fascinating. They live in a different world. They're a different sort of personality where I think what drew me to it is that they were very much in their own skin. Mm -hmm. Like they knew who they were and they were unapologetic about it. And looking back, it's sad to think that women can only be viewed that way if they were this mythological character, right? Which gets to the point in your book is that (laughs) women are monsters, are often portrayed as monsters. What was that realization like for you and, and what brought you to the point where you said, I have to write this book about it? You know, in some ways, I think it was like, it was a long time coming. And it's interesting that actually that you brought up Anne Rice, because later in the book, I, I write about Dracula and there's one character in Dracula who is turned into a vampire and it's precisely what you say. And she's viewed as dangerous deadly because Mm -hmm. she's so seductive is just completely i mean she's a vampire so she's completely unselfconscious about what she wants Mm -hmm. she's just out for blood in every way there were all of these little you know sparks of awareness and but i think one of the the key moments kind of random in 2010 i read about this in the intro i went to see Tim Burton's adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of a predictable thing for me to do. It's a 19th century book. I like it. Lewis Carroll's a total weirdo, but, (laughs) you know, I wanted to see what what was up with this adaptation. In the adaptation, which is meh, there is this really interesting thing. Alice, she's, I think, 19 years old. She's really not especially thrilled with the way her life is going. Ends up back in Wonderland. Everything is helter-skelter. And her pals, you know, the Mad Hatter and everybody, they're all like, Alice, you know, what's happened to you? You've lost your muchness. And this just, it was like all of these 
just like jangling in my head because in the world of the film, muchness is, you know, it's Alice's chutzpahs, it's her spark, it's her strength, and she has to, to summon it in order to sort of find her way back to herself. And I just remember thinking, leaving the movie, you know, it's just really wild because if you had given me this word, this sort of fake noun, muchness, and said, you know, make up a definition for this, I would have come up with something that was really negative, which obviously I would have been projecting. It felt personal, and it felt personal in this, in a negative way, that muchness seemed like it would mean that you were too much in every possible way, that you were fundamentally too much, that you were brimful of all these unwieldy emotions, and, and you weren't able to you know, you weren't really able to calibrate yourself to social and sort of cultural expectations. And, you know, so I kept thinking about that. I was in grad school. I, you know, I was, Alice in Wonderland was, was a text that, you know, I thought about and I was really interested in the way that the narrator of Alice in Wonderland seems to kind of punish Alice for, you know, the ways that her body changes and for the fact that she is this kind of exuberant and unpredictable girl. And so I kept thinking about this term and it began to sort of attach itself to, you know, what I was reading. And then I, and then gradually it, I began thinking about the ways that it resonates different things that I saw in Victorian literature. It was almost sort of dismaying the continuity that so much of the issues that women face in Victorian novels, the cultural issues that, you know, of course, we are by no means in that in that era, but the extent to which patriarchy and all of these various heteronormative sort of ideas have sort of clung to our cultural psyche. It's, you know, there's always an ebb and flow, but we're now in a moment where it feels in some ways all of that really pernicious stuff, all of the anxiety around anyone who isn't a white cisgender straight man. You know, I think that there's, we're at a moment where there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Your commentary in the book on Alice in Wonderland was something I was like, yep, <laughs> nodding my head a lot as I was reading it for a couple of reasons. Again, I think I identified a lot with that story, not the story so much, the word, the fake noun of muchness, right? <laughs> as someone who's been described that way, of always being told to tone it down or can you have less edge? Can you smile more, please? Mm. It would make everyone feel more comfortable if you would just Mm. smile more. (laughs) You know, all of the number of ways that women who have an opinion and aren't inclined to suppress it. (laughs) Can you please readjust yourself in this like long list of ways so that I can be more comfortable? Right. So I don't have to deal with what you actually think about things. Yes, right. So there's that. And then there also the connection between women intimate relationships that maybe are sexual in nature or are not. Mm-hmm. Either way, women have these intimate relationships and friendships that can be completely separate from their sexuality. And I thought you draw an interesting connection that I remember watching the movie and thinking, is there something going on here between Alice and the Queen? 
Yes. <laughs> when you mentioned it in the book, I was like, I do remember thinking that, that it almost seemed like they should be in an actual relationship. The smiles, the smiles that they share. It's, They're like giving each other eyes, right? They are. They totally are. Yeah. Yeah. But what I thought that, you know, one of the takeaways I had from Alice in Wonderland, that version, was that both Alice and the Queen of Hearts were bold women and they were both portrayed as crazy. Yes. I mean, the, oh, the Queen of Hearts, I mean, she's made to be completely grotesque. And I mean, Mm -hmm. she's, yeah. And I think these things, they're never clear cut. You know, we can, it can be true that we are pathologizing a woman who is also really bad. And maybe one of the reasons that she's bad or in the Queen of Hearts case, like, you know, homicidal, maybe it has to do with things that were outside of her control. And that led to her making choices and it mm-hmm. curdled her heart somehow. You know, it's, you know, I, I think that that's when, you know, when we talk about difficult conversations that we have, I think within feminism is we, it's always more nuanced and that we have to be able to recognize that somebody might be the way that we see them to some extent maybe is shaped by sexism or misogyny. And it also might be true that they need to be held to account. Like somebody like Kellyanne Conway, you know, there's probably all sorts of misogyny that shapes the way that people, you know, look at her that doesn't make her good. It doesn't, you know, doesn't mm-hmm. make her somebody that we should rally around. And so it's a uh, complicated thing. Sometimes when we're, you know, when we're talking about what does it mean to be a feminist and support each other, you know, we run into these places where we're like, well, yes, okay, these sorts of larger forces, they impact all of us, but then what we choose to do with it is, that is, that's a matter of responsibility. And what we decide to do with the privileges that we do have too is of course crucial. Mm -hmm. Yes to all of that. It also makes me think of, like this is what I love about books instead of movies is there's so much more nuance and there's so much more to the story. But it makes me think of The Wizard of Oz versus Wicked. And I, I read Wicked, the actual book. I did see the Broadway play, which is excellent, by the way. But the book <laughs> is also excellent. And to your point, it's from the perspective of the woman who is betrayed as the monster. And so I wonder right. what a story of like the Queen of Hearts would be like, what's her origin story? <laughs> oh, I like that. How did like she get that. to be that which wasn't born that way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's fascinating. And I think when you are able to look at things from a different perspective, in the case of Wicked, which of course is fantasy, right? She had been marginalized and disenfranchised and oppressed Mm -hmm. in many ways, right? And so when you look at it from that perspective, it was actually her claiming her muchness, claiming her agency and fighting back. And so we're not talking about real people here. (laughs) And so maybe there were some things that she needed to be held to account for, but it was understandable how she came to the conclusion that she came to. So I think sometimes in literature, we're able to see the nuance Mm -hmm. of the people and how they got there. Not that it excuses their behavior, but I think it allows you to develop some empathy for what people go through that create what it creates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I think that's so true. And even just the very, the act of uh, selecting a point of view or a narrative being told from multiple points of view, which I know, you know, you can do it with in a cinematic medium as Mm -hmm. well. You know, I do think that there is something so fundamentally empathetic about novels that resist just simply telling a story from one perspective. And some are more intentional than others in that regard. George Eliot in Middlemarch, we have a heroine. I mean, there are like 50 billion characters in that book, but there's one woman, Dorothea, that we were sort of following throughout. And she's married to just this like totally wretched guy, just really awful. And I forget, it's such a long book. I can't remember when this happens, but it's, I think it's earlier than halfway through. A chapter starts and it starts with Dorothea. And then the narrator interrupts and says, but why always Dorothea? And then forces us to reckon with our expectations and who we want to sympathize with and who we are disinclined to sympathize with. And then sort of forces us to sit with this other character who there is like nothing likable about. And it's not, I don't think the argument is like, oh, actually this guy, he's a good guy. He's, no, he's, he's not, he kind of sucks. But empathy, you know, means paying attention to everybody's textures. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I think that there's an element of that in your book. Because when I initially, when I started reading it, and tell me if I'm wrong here, if I'm misinterpreting, I really thought it was like, this is a book for like, women who identify as feminists. That's who this is for. But as I started getting further into the book, I started to think, well, I don't see why men shouldn't read this book either whether they're feminist or not, (laughs) because it's about taking these characters that you see in modern pop culture and fictional characters and explaining sort of this nuance and the texture of why these characters are the way that they are portrayed. Yeah. And what the role of the gender stereotypes played in creating that character. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many men have read the book, will read the book, but I would love it if they did. You know, I think it's, I think it's good to read things that aren't specifically for us. I think it's actually important to do that. One thing that I appreciated is the discussion in here about closeness between women and how it's possible, even natural and common, probably for women to have these very close intimate relationships that are not sexual in nature, but we don't often have the opportunity to see that reflected in a healthy way in the world anywhere. And when I was thinking about it, in the book, you give the example of the color purple Mm -hmm. and the relationship between Suge and Seeley and how that is such a deeply connected relationship. And what I found interesting about that was when I really started thinking about it, when I can remember other movies that have these close personal relationships between the women characters, they're often displayed as inappropriate Mm -hmm. or like outright nuts, like outright like bat shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
yeah. crazy yeah. as if women don't have deeply connected relationships in real life. It made me think of when I was a kid, there was this movie called Single White Female. And it was like these two best friends and one of them was actually crazy and stalking the other one and tried to kill her and like all these stereotypical kind of slasher movie things. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's more common to see portrayed than a relationship like Suge and Celie who have a very multifaceted, complicated, but deeply loving relationship. Why do you think that is? I, I think that we... I think that we, or rather, there's this sort of fixation with feminine intimacy that comes from, you know, that's very much structured by a male gaze, by a white, straight, cisgender male gaze. And I think that there's a lot of anxiety around relationships that don't seem to have room for men. And so those those sorts of bonds get pathologized, they get eroticized. We get something like the scene in Wild Things where, you know, we've got the scene with that really hot threesome, but of course, Matt Dillon is in the mix. You know, that's sort of, I think, the sort of same-sex female intimacy that a white straight male gaze, like, that's what feels palatable and legible, something that is for male pleasure and something that can be where where the man can intervene. These bonds that are full and nourishing and complicated and full of love and that, uh, you know, maybe exist alongside a heterosexual relationship or maybe don't, that I think is much more difficult for the patriarchal gaze to sit with. I mean, which is why I think there's such interest in, you know, a film like Heavenly Creatures, which is based on admittedly a bananas murder case of these two young girls who thought they were going to be separated and so they murdered one of their mothers. That is wild. It's also very extreme. It's not the sort of thing that most of us can have loving relationships mm-hmm. without committing homicide. That sort of spectacle, that's where the attention goes because it's something that can be pathologized. It's something that can, we can say, oh, well, obviously this was dangerous and it was wrong. And we can take a little pleasure from, from the sexy parts of it, mm-hmm. but but we know what this is. This is pathology. This is unhealthy. And so, yeah, you know, I think, and I think probably there's, it's a continuation of why there's, I mean, there are plenty of reasons why there's uh, such agitation around feminine queerness, but, you know, I think that that's part of it. When there's no room for a man, it's sort of like, uh, does not compute. How am I supposed <laughs> to understand this? Well, you know, it makes me wonder, do you think that I guess straight men are threatened by deep, intimate female relationships? I mean, I hope not. I hope not all of them are. I think, you know... I mean, it's speculation, right? We can't know for sure. But I wonder that because... I mean, I think about the men in my life who are very cool and I love them and I can have like deeply interesting conversations with them and I don't think any of them would be threatened by that kind of relationship. But then if we look out into the media or pop culture, to your point, those kind of relationships are often displayed at the most extreme and for whose benefit? Yeah. If that's not, if that's not reflective of what really happens then for whose benefit are we portraying these things in this way? 
it's odd. You know, I think in some ways it's maybe to some extent we, it's a situation in which we are seeing some progress in these particular circumstances that, you know, we choose to surround ourselves with people and to align ourselves with people who aren't going to be the sort who are weirded out by an intimate same-sex bond. You know, I don't think that that's the sort of thing that would bother my husband. In fact, you know, I know that it, it doesn't because I'm close, very, very close to a lot of women, you know, and really intimate ways and he's cool with that and he's also somebody that you know I can have a lot of conversations about privilege and heteronormativity and we you know we're a mixed orientation marriage he's straight I'm bisexual but I I also know that I am very fortunate to be sort of surrounded by a lot of very progressive minded people Mm -hmm. so you know I think that if you know, and I hope, I hope that that's a sign that we are gradually sort of slouching towards this place where, you know, where we're just willing to, to see the sort of capaciousness of humanity, that there are so many ways to love and to be and, you know, to, to express ourselves. But I think that the fact that it's true that we still do see so much that reminds us that obviously there is some great deal of anxiety around this. There's still an urge to make a spectacle out of it because it's happening. And there seems, you know, we're seeing it, you know, if we're seeing it in tabloids or media, there's obviously some sense that that's how people want to relate to these Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me that I think most of us, of course, I'm assuming, most of us walk around in our lives and have these nuanced, connected relationships that are not reflected in what you see every day. And so it always makes me think that somebody is benefiting from that narrative that isn't real. Otherwise, we wouldn't still have it. I mean, that's the reason why people keep things around. Whether it's toxic or not, you keep it around because it's benefiting you in some way. You're getting something from it. And so I keep thinking like, what are we getting from this? <laughs> Who is this benefiting? Because it certainly isn't me or anybody I know. It's an interesting conversation, I think, to have and something to think about in the things that we read and the things that we interact with is to always be asking and interrogating the why behind? Why is this being portrayed this way? Why is this being told in this way? When we know, even if at times we don't want to admit it, we know that the truth is much more nuanced. (laughs) I think it's important that we talk about privilege. You've mentioned it a couple times here. You mention it in the book. And I wonder what you think about, you know, you're talking about Victorian constraints here and how that's impacted us today, but more specifically how that's impacted non-binary people, people of color. Mm -hmm. You don't go into it in too much depth here in the book and you admit that right off the bat, but what do you think that impact has been? On people of more marginalized communities? Mm -hmm. I absolutely, I can only speak from where I'm sitting, which is a pretty privileged space. I think that anything that patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, any sort of prejudice, it's inevitably, it's going to, it's going to be most pernicious in its effects upon those who are most vulnerable. I think, you know, this urge to 
pathologize means, and this urge to sort of categorize everything means that people who identify as non-binary, who identify as trans, it's really sort of rooted in the sorts of legislature and the sort of rhetoric that's quite violent in its rendering. Black women, I don't remember the, the numbers, but the number of deaths in labor are so high because they're just sort of not listened to. Their symptoms are not taken seriously. It's, we, there is so much that we, that we still need to do. Just even on the level of language, the level at which we speak about people, even when it comes to talking about mental illness, neurodiversity, we're still using terms that are pernicious. It's really so, you know, on the one hand, yes, you know, I don't think that we're living, we're not, we're certainly not living in the 19th century. Yes, you know, we, we have the right to vote, although, of course, we're, we're seeing that voter suppression is alive and well, but it's, these forces are insidious and there is so much work to do. And, you know, and it's up to those of us who have the ability and who can do that work safely, most safely. Mm-hmm. It's complicated and it's nuanced and there's so, so much to know and do, I think, to your point. There's a lot here in the book. There's so much for our listeners, I think, who are interested in reading this to take in. So I I appreciated that you, I think, really made a good effort on trying to bring together the different angles of how this has played out over time. So I I appreciated your attention to detail there. For our listeners, Rachel, where do you want to send them to find the book? Well, I would love if they would uh, check out Loyalty Bookstore. It's based in, well, there are two locations, Washington, D.C. and Silver Spring. Uh, So if you're local, they are, I believe, doing curbside pickup right now, but you can also order online and they are just a wonderful local independent bookstore. But otherwise, I just urge you to go to your local independent bookstore or to go to bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. We especially, we want these places, we want these establishments to endure. We need them. They're intellectually and emotionally nourishing. Yes, absolutely. We will make sure and link in the show notes for everybody listening to this so you can find Loyalty Bookstore and bookshop.org as easily as possible. Like I said, I've been pleasantly surprised with this book. I am really enjoying it. So I do recommend it. There's so much to learn here and so much to cover. And I appreciate your writing on this, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely my pleasure. All right, folks, you know what to do. Hit subscribe if you haven't done it yet so that you don't miss any of these amazing women that we have the privilege of covering this season. As usual, please share this episode with your friends, your families, your followers, you know, with all your peeps. Sharing is caring, and that's how we've grown this show so fantastically is because of your support and your shares and just letting the people around you know what you are listening to. Don't forget to hang on to the very, very end so you can learn how you will have an opportunity to win this book too much, how Victorian constraints still bind women today. And if you are a woman like me who's been called too much or too edgy or too whatever, you should probably check this book out. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks again for joining us. We appreciate your time and attention and love so, so much. Until next time, we out. <laughs>